Lincoln has the opportunity to be a social leader in this country. We have been casually ignoring a problem that has gotten so out of control that our children are throwing around names and words without even understanding their true meaning and treating things as, as though they're normal. I go into nice family restaurants and I see people throwing this name around and pretending as though everything is just fine. I'm talking about boneless chicken wings. I propose that we as a city remove the, excuse me, I'm trying to, yeah, excuse me, sure. come on. I propose that we as a city remove the name boneless wings from our menus. These are our reasons why. Number one, nothing about boneless chicken wings actually come from the wing of a chicken. We would be disgusted if a butcher was mislabeling their cuts of meats, but then we go around and pretending as though the breast of the chicken is its wing. Number two, boneless chicken wings are just chicken tenders, which are already boneless. I don't go to order boneless tacos. I don't go and order boneless club sandwiches. I don't ask for boneless auto repair. It's just what's expected. And then number three, we need to raise our children better. Our children are raised being afraid of having bones attached to their meat. That's where meat comes from. It grows on bones. We need to teach them that the wing of a chicken is from a chicken and it's delicious. I propose that we rename boneless wings in the city of Lincoln. We can call them buffalo style chicken tenders. We can call them wet tenders. We can call them saucy nugs or trash. We can take these steps and show the country that where we stand and that we understand that we've been living a lie for far too long and we know it because we feel it in our bones. Thank you. Somebody actually did this. Now, it was done in jest. His father sits on the city council, and they needed a little levity. But nonetheless, sometimes when we think of local government, sometimes this is what we imagine. You know, making a really big deal out of issues that maybe in the grand scheme of things aren't that important. Maybe trying to, like, hash out city ordinances about things that really aren't problems. Maybe we think of taxes and Taxes, and where do those taxes go anyway? When we think about city government and local government, sometimes a lot of different images come to mind. Some of them negative, some of them positive, some of them completely indifferent. But there is one very fitting image that often seldom eludes us, and that is the image of a God-ordained authority. Now, some of you are saying, what? Local government? But it's true. If, if you've grown up in the church, if you're familiar with this, you've probably at some time or another probably heard that government is a God-ordained institution. If you've not grown up in the church or this is fairly new to you, you might be saying, well, that's news to me. You know, I didn't realize. And that's understandable because it's not something that's spoken about very often, especially in the wider scope of, you know, how people talk about government. But it's true. And we're going to learn about that a little bit today as we continue in part three of this series called Lead Us. In this series, we've been talking about leadership. We all want to be led. We all want to be led well. We all want leaders that are skilled and capable and able to deal with all of the mess and the brokenness in the world that we see around us. Now, ultimately, in the Christian faith, we put our hope in Jesus to be the ultimate leader. And when he comes with his kingdom, he will fix all the brokenness we see in the world around us. But we don't live in that age yet. We live here today where the brokenness is all too apparent in our lives and in our world. And in this series, we've been talking about how do we follow Jesus' lead as his people in a world that doesn't recognize his authority. That is some tension that we as Christians have to try to navigate. And we feel it in the different facets of our lives. 
Sometimes we feel that at home, and that's why two weeks ago we talked about following Jesus' lead in our family. Sometimes we can feel that in our church, and it's why last week we talked about following his lead in the church community. Today we're broadening the scope a little bit more. We're talking about following Jesus' lead in our communities. What does that look like for us, and how do we put that into practice? Now, you probably noticed that the scope has been getting bigger and bigger every week. It's probably not a surprise. Next week, we're going to talk about how do we follow Jesus' lead in our nation, especially during an election season. Now, I realize politics and church are supposed to be oil and water. They don't mix, but we're going to mix the two and see what happens next week. Who knows? I do. But here's the thing. No matter where you fall on the political spectrum, I think everybody's going to walk away next week with something to consider something to meditate on. I think we're all going to learn a little bit more about who we are as a people and what it means to belong to Jesus's kingdom while we live in this nation. So I would encourage everybody, whether you're online or you're in person, be sure and join us next week. This week, though, we're talking about local government and our community. How do we follow Jesus's lead there? And the passage we're going to use to help guide us in this comes in the book of Romans. It's in the New Testament, book of Romans chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, why don't you open those up to Romans chapter 13. As always, if you forgot your Bible or don't have one with you, we'll put the passages on the screens to the side, or you can download the FCC Mammoth app on your mobile device. Click the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and then you'll find a tool called Sermon Notes. It's got our passage and all of our notes pulled up, ready for you to use. It's Romans chapter 13. We're going to do something we don't always do. We're going to read the passage in its entirety, and then we're going to back up and make some observations about it. So here's how it goes. This is verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If it's taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. And if honor, then honor. So you probably picked up there's a theme that runs through this passage. It's something we've already mentioned and alluded to already. Government is a God-ordained institution. It really is. That's pretty obvious from reading this. Now, hearing that, some of us may recoil or balk at that idea, and I get it. In fact, I remember one time I was working at a pizza place, I was delivering at the time, and I was talking with one of my coworkers about tips. Do we report our tips on our taxes? Everybody knows you should, but everybody doesn't. And so we were talking about this, and Heath said, well, why do you think it's the right thing to do? I said, because government is a God-ordained authority. And he laughed out loud and said, yeah, right. And I understood that reaction because what popped in his mind were all of the corrupt instances or crooked politicians or loopholes or all the broken parts of the system that frustrates all of us. Understandably, anybody could walk away a little jaded and disenchanted when we think about how politics and, and government operates in our present day and age. But we need to make a really important distinction between the institution or the concept of government and the execution 
or the practice of government. Because the former really is a gift from God and stems from His wisdom and His grace. The latter really is just evidence of messy people making a mess out of things. And when I say mess, I'm really talking about sin. We are people that have been touched by sin in some way. We've all been influenced by it. And it brings mess into our lives and it empowers us with the unfortunate ability of making a mess out of almost anything. Even the most ideal circumstances will be made a mess of by messy people, namely anybody. You take another God-ordained institution, like the church, for instance. The church is a God-ordained institution. It is the collection of God's people presently on earth. It is the present iteration of his kingdom over which he reigns and through which he works. It's a really important God-ordained institution. And we are supposed to be people of grace. However, we can argue about some pretty petty stuff in the church. And we are supposed to be patient and kind and gentle. However, we can complain about a lot of things too. And your pastor, as we learned last week, is charged with shepherding over God's flock that is under your care, and I care about you, and I love you, but when I get my ninth text message on Friday night from somebody at church on the day where everybody's supposed to leave me and my family alone, there are some groans and grumbles, admittedly, because I'm a mess, and you're a mess, and we're all messy people. Even a God-ordained institution is going to get a little messy when human beings get involved. Now, that doesn't make the church any less of a God-given thing. That just is evidence that as sinful, messy people, we invite mess into even ideal circumstances. Marriage is, is another and probably even better illustration. Marriage is a God-ordained institution. It is a God-breathed thing. That's his idea. And, and when marriage is good, it tends to be good. And we can see how God would have had such a great idea. But when marriage is bad, it tends to be really bad, and it tastes less like a little slice of heaven and more like a little slice of hell sometimes. It doesn't make marriage any less of a God-ordained institution. It's just further evidence that messy people have the remarkable ability of making anything messy. And government is the same story. This is a God-ordained institution. He created it. He imbued it with authority and with power. But when messy human beings, sinful human beings get involved, it's going to get messy. That's where the frustration stems from. The institution, the concept, really is a grace from God that serves a good purpose. And we're reminded of that purpose a little bit when we look back at verse 3. It says, "...for rulers hold no terror for those who do right." But for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from fear and the one of authority? Then do what is right and you'll be commended. It's this reminder that government protects justice and lawfulness and order in a society. All of those are great and beneficial to all of our lives. And a lot of times when we hear this verse or this passage, our immediate thoughts go to the highest seats of government authority, federal authority and presidents and congresspeople and, or state level governors and so on. But local government is maybe an even more applicable, immediately recognizable illustration of what this passage is talking about. Can you imagine what our community would look like if there was no local government? Some of us might go, Whoa! but trust me, it wouldn't be that great. Who's going to oversee the infrastructure here? Because roads and water mains and things, they don't maintain themselves. Somebody has to oversee that. Somebody has to schedule maintenance. Somebody has to do the maintenance on that. 
Or sanitation, you know, sewage and trash. That stuff doesn't just disappear. Somebody has to organize where that stuff goes and make sure it goes to a safe place and is handled properly. I don't want to live in a community without sewage and, and, and trash, people to, to take care of things. That'd be terrible. Or, or what about safety, you know? What if your house catches on fire? I hope you got a good garden hose because there's no fire department here, right? Somebody's got to oversee emergency services and emergency management and make sure those are staffed and make sure those are funded and make sure those exist. Or health codes and safety violations, right? Your favorite restaurant would probably still be around if there was no local government, but I guarantee you, you wouldn't want to eat there because there's nobody to enforce health and safety codes. Nobody's going to be handing out citations. There are so many different ways that local government improves the quality of our lives in ways that we often take for granted and overlook. And all of this, by the way, is assuming that everybody is going to be on their best behavior all the time, which we know is not going to happen because, once again, messy people make a mess out of things. It just goes to show local government benefits us in so many ways. We might be tempted to think we don't need local government or they're just bureaucrats or whatever, but I want you to think for a moment. This is something I got from Facebook. It's probably come across your feed too. It's a test, a test to see whether or not we really are capable of self-governing. And it all boils down to the shopping cart return at your local supermarket. The shopping cart return is where you put your cart when you're done with it. It is objectively the right thing to do. Just put your cart back when you're done. Everybody can do it. It's very simple. It is right. It is good for your neighbor. It is good for the store. It's objectively right. Further, there's really no reason other than an emergency that somebody would not be able to return the shopping cart. Now, on the flip side, if you choose not to return the shopping cart, nobody's going to fine you. Nobody's going to hunt you down. Nobody's going to punish you. It solely relies upon you, the goodness of your heart, and your care for your neighbor, whether or not you will do what is right. And in an ideal world where nobody was a mess and everything functioned the way that it should, those shopping carts would find their way to the return every single time. But you and I both know the sad, sick reality that we live in. Every time we go to Walmart, there is a shopping cart in the middle of a perfectly good parking spot right next to the shopping cart return. We are not ready for a world without government. That is the proof in the pudding. We are savages. <laughs> we need people to oversee function of government operation, of facilities, of programs. We need somebody to make sure there's going to be law, there's going to be order, there's going to be justice in our society. That's what government does. That's God's good purpose and why he blesses us with this institution. And when we understand what this thing is, that it's a gift, it helps us understand a little bit more about who God is and how we can worship him more fully. I promise you, we didn't just gather together this morning for a civics lesson. We really did gather to worship our God. And understanding the role and purpose of government, it really does help us understand a little bit more about who he is, what he's like, and how we can worship him a little more fully. You think back to verse 2 for a moment in our passage, real short. It says, there is no authority except that which God has established. Government exists, it has authority, God put it in place. If he established it and he empowered it, that means that there must be something about government that agrees with God. There's something about its function that speaks truly about who he is and what he stands for. 
After all, he's not going to create, establish, and empower something that is contradictory to him. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, you think about it like this. In my house, I don't like noise. I don't like loud noises. I just don't. If it's expected, if it's short duration, that's fine. But I'm a very quiet individual. Loud noises just stress me the heck out. I don't want it. Enter my children. My four-year-old, for, for a while, was fascinated with this drum kit over here. And my family, my parents, thought it would be so funny to buy him this little drum kit at Walmart and to send him home with it. And it's in the basement right now, as you might have guessed. But he loved that thing. And they jokingly said, well, it's just the first of more to come. And I very sternly said, no, it's not. I hate loud noises. I hate cacophony. I just want peace. Now, I love my son. If he really wants to play the drum, drums and pursue that, I'll buy the drums. I'll deal with it. But I'm not going to actively encourage or endorse or applaud that. I'm going to encourage quiet things like keyboards or guitars or anything you can plug headphones into when you practice. I'm not going to encourage or endorse something that is opposed to my values. And the same thing is true with God. If government protects law and justice and order in a society, that must be stuff that speaks truly about who God is. He's not going to applaud and empower that if he doesn't agree with it. In fact, we see this truth about God's character all throughout Scripture. We can go back to the very first story in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, the creation story. Verse 2, the earth was formless, there was disorder, you might say, and empty. And the rest of that story is the story of God giving form, order, to the world and then filling it with living creatures, quote, according to their kind more order. If we read that story, even just on a surface, literal level, it's very obvious it speaks to the orderly nature of God. But even if you're a different persuasion, if you see this as complementary to an evolutionary understanding of life, we're still talking about ascending complexity of life and development and further order being introduced into nature. It doesn't matter how you slice it. When you look at creation, it speaks to the truth of who God is. He is a God who appreciates order. We see that when we look at his charge to humanity. When he creates mankind, he's, he charges them to subdue the earth and rule over it. Well, you don't have to subdue something that is calm and tame and domesticated. You subdue something that is wild and unruly. He charges mankind, his image bearers, with order. And then we look at the rest of the Old Testament, and God introduce, introduces all these commands and all these laws. Things like do not murder, do not steal, do not let the sun go down on your anger. All of these things introduce order to our moral lives, to our relational lives, to our society as a whole. God's commands endorse order. Even the gospel speaks to God's lawfulness and his affinity for order. The gospel is this story of, of our forgiveness of sins being washed away by the blood of Jesus. And we praise God for his grace, but we need to realize it's not like our sins were just swept under the rug or that God turned a blind eye to it and said, we just, we just won't worry about that. No, sin in the Bible, when it's spoken of, is called rebellion. It's called lawlessness. It is contrary to who God is. And in the gospel story, that sin doesn't just disappear. It stands trial. It takes center stage. It is sentenced. It is punished. Wrongs are righted. Debts are paid. Punishments are dispersed. Wrath is given and felt. Anger 
It's done away with. It all is experienced fully and wholly. We're just not the ones who experience it. We have the joy of Jesus standing in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice. All of that lawlessness receives the full brunt of its merited justice in the cross. We just happen to be people who have the joy of receiving grace and mercy instead of what we deserved. Even the gospel speaks about God's lawful nature and his nature that speaks to order. It's a story we see throughout Scripture. When we look at government, we see his character reflected. Maybe not in the execution all the time, but in the concept, in the institution. We can see a little bit about who God is and what he cares about, and we can worship him a little more fully because of it. And when we look at government, we also are reminded that God genuinely cares about our good. I mean, we read this when we look back at our passage in, in Romans 13. It's verse 4. It says, For the one in authority, governing authorities, is God's servant for your good. Well, if God chose these people to promote our good, then he must care about our good too. Now, that needs to be said. He, he doesn't always necessarily care about our pleasure or our ease, but our good. And, and there can be a world of difference between those things at times. For instance, confession time. I hope no police are watching today. I love to speed. I do. It's fun. I enjoy going fast. I enjoy passing people on the interstate. It makes me feel important. I love, it's true, I'm, I'm, I'm a very simple individual. I love arriving at my destination in a timely manner because on time is late. Early, that's on time. That's how I live. I just like to go fast. But going fast and speeding is not always going to work for my good. In fact, oftentimes it's not. And it also endangers those around me. Nine times out of ten, everything may be fine. But on that tenth instance, it could be a fender bender. It could be vehicular homicide. I have no control over that situation. It endangers me. It endangers people around me. It endangers my property. It endangers their property. It's not going to be for my good, even if I get away with it nine times out of ten. And that's why there are laws. I may enjoy it, but it's not good. There are laws that govern our behavior for our benefit and for society's benefit, and government's job is to enforce and uphold lawfulness, order, and justice. The same is true with God and His Word and His commands. There may be a lot of things in this world that we enjoy, that we find pleasurable, that we find easy, but it's not always going to function for our good. That's why God gives us instruction. And what we find is that those people who live according to His Word and according to His instruction tend to experience less relational dysfunction, less uncertainty in life, less depression, less frustration, less, I'm not going to say your life's problem-free, but less hardship in life. You're still going to experience some degree of those things because we are messy people living with other messy people in a messy and broken world. It's going to happen. But those who follow God's word and command tend to experience that to a lesser degree because he genuinely cares about our good. And he has given us laws and commands to guide us down that good path. Government reminds us of this. When we look at their function, when we look at law, when we look at order, when we look at the justice they uphold, again and again, when we look at this God-ordained institution, it helps us understand a little bit more about who God is, what he's like, and how we can worship him a little more fully. Government really is a gift in so many ways. And as people of God, we ought to appreciate this gift from God in a particular way. Or put in a slightly different way, as people following Jesus' lead in our community, we ought to appreciate and encourage and support 
the people leading our community. This is one that's sometimes challenging. But we're reminded of the significance of this when we read the last portion of our passage in Romans 13. This is verse 5. It goes like this. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, respect. If honor, then honor. We are encouraged to submit to the governing authorities for two reasons. One, so you stay out of trouble, so you don't get, you know, issues don't arise legally. But also out of matter of conscience. Now, what does our conscience have to do with honoring local authorities? Well, it goes like this. We know where ultimate authority lies. In fact, we know him well. We know the God of the universe. We know who he is. We know what he's like. We know what he's done. And we also know that he has established these local authorities. And to dishonor the lesser is also to dishonor the one who created them and established them. Out of conscience, because we honor God, because we worship Him, we are to honor the authorities He's created. I mean, after all, if if you came home from work one day and your spouse slaved and made this really good-looking dinner and put it down in front of you and you took a bite of it and it tasted like gravel, you're not going to say, this is gross, what are you trying to feed me? That may be a criticism of that dish, but it's also a criticism of the one who made it and established it. And every man in this room knows you choke that down and you smile no matter how bad it tastes because you love that woman and you want to honor her. Am I wrong? No, I'm not. And all God's people said, amen, right? No, we, we honor local authorities because we know who created them. It's a matter of conscience for us. And there are two ways that we're encouraged to honor them. The first is not fun, but it's necessary. We pay taxes. Now, nobody likes paying taxes. Government officials don't like paying taxes. Nobody in the history of the United States has ever woken up on April 15th and went, Woo! Tax day! I-R-S, I-R-S. It's never happened. Not once. Nobody likes taxes. But they are necessary. They help fund this government and all the operations that protect order and justice and good in our society. And God has also said that a worker is worth his wages. And so we get every legal deduction we're entitled to, but then we pay because that's what it means to honor. The other one is a little more difficult, maybe even more difficult and less fun than paying taxes. We are told to give respect and honor that is due. And in this particular culture where you are expected to openly criticize and chastise, that can be difficult. And again, we may think of the highest seats of government, presidents or or governors or whatever. It's easy to criticize those people because their faces and their names, and then we don't really know them. We just see them on TV or on the internet. But this applies just as much to local leaders. You get on Facebook or you just sit at McDonald's and listen to people drinking coffee, and it's really easy to hear criticism of local officials and authorities because we live in an age where dishonor and disrespect is expected and where it's just normal and commonplace. That should not be the case for us because we know who established the authority that those people wield. And as a matter of conscience towards our God and our Creator, we honor and we respect. Honor and respect for public officials looks like encouragement. It looks like understanding. Now, there should be accountability. We live in a system where voting and so on allows for accountability. But at the same time, we should not be openly chastising or criticizing 
the way that is so common in our world. Because those things seldom, if ever, help people do their job and lead better. When you step into a seat of leadership, it doesn't matter if you're in a local seat of government, if you're on the school board, if you're the police chief, if you're the mayor, city council, it doesn't matter. You're putting a target on your back. And it's really easy for people to criticize even when you're doing your job well. That kind of negativity festers, it weighs, it never produces a better result. And that's why people like us in the church, because we love God, because we want to follow Jesus' lead, because we desire somebody like Jesus to be leading our community, ought to be praying for the wisdom of Jesus and the discernment of Jesus to be filling the life of these local authorities and leaders. They need encouragement, especially in this time of COVID-19 where a lot of really difficult decisions have had to have been made. Decisions about layoffs, decisions about funding, decisions about taxes, decisions about returning to school. None of these decisions are easy. And I promise you, all of these people have lost sleep over it. They don't need criticism. They need the people of God to encourage them and to lift them up and to pray for them. And that's what we're going to do right now. We are going to honor our local leaders and we are going to pray for them because that's what they need and that's what we're called to do. So if you would, let's bow. Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for the leaders in this community. Sometimes it's easy to forget that they're just messy people like us, and it is easy to find fault and flaw. It's easy to criticize. But Lord, let us be people of grace. We have been saved by grace. We taste it every single day. We enjoy your pleasure and your favor, so let us extend it to others in equal measure. Let us encourage our local officials and leaders. We pray that they would have wisdom and discernment in making decisions today, tomorrow, and and on the difficult road that lies ahead in the coming months. We pray that you would be with their families, that you would encourage them and protect them when stress threatens marriages or, or makes us less than the mothers and fathers we wish we could be. We pray, Father, that you would be with these people and open their eyes to your favor and your kindness, that they would experience your leading, they would experience your grace and your love. Lord, at the end of the day, we don't stand before you based on how we've led, how we've made decisions, how we've funded, and the referendums that we've passed. We stand before you on our faithfulness. And so let these people be faithful. Let them be called to Christ and let them taste the goodness of his love and his sacrifice. And Lord, as you bless these people and these leaders, may we as a community experience that blessing as a result. Because as the leader gets better, the organization, the community, the school, the police system, the city hall, the city council, everything gets better when leadership improves. So be with our local leaders, Father. Bless them, keep them, let them know they are loved. And as the people of God, remind us to encourage, to speak well, to silence critics and scoffers, to build up these leaders that they may feel supported and that they may continue to serve honestly to the best of their ability. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.